And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's tried that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. It is indeed Friday. Thank you for that introduction, you little climate munchkin. We are having CCR 81 today. It seemed like just yesterday we started with number one. Today we have with us a special guest, plus our usual panelist, Sterling Burnett and Linnea, who are going to be giving expert commentary. Steve Gorham, who is with us today, has written a new book, and this book is called Green Breakdown, and it's all about the impending failure of renewables and um, what to expect in the way that these things are going to crash and burn. Of course, anyone who's followed the climate debate on the skeptic side knows this, but Steve put it into words, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But first, I want to get to the crazy climate news of the week. Yes, there's always crazy climate news every week, but this week we've got a good batch. First story up is the Arctic refuses to melt. German scientists blame unusual weather phenomena. Yes, that's right. It's climate if it melts, but if it's not melting, it's weather. Go figure, right? Now, here's the thing. We have this fantastic graph here. And, you know, if you look at it closely, between about 2007 and 2015, and if you were to draw a red line across there, you would see that there's no trend at all. There it is. See that? No trend. It just refuses to melt. Now, remember all the pronunciations that came out from Al Gore and everyone else around 2007 when there was a big drop in the uh, sea ice minimum in September? They said, you know, Ar Arctic's going to be ice-free by 2011. And then it was 2013. And then it was 2015. And then around 2016, 17, they stopped making those pronunciations because nothing was happening. It just goes to show the alarmists are never right when they come up with these pronunciations. Yeah, so, but, and we, but being alarmist means never having to say you're wrong. Um, mm. You know, they initially the initial claim was that it'd be ice-free by 2050, and then choosing peak ice. So we, we got to a period where there was peak ice in the 20th century. We start measuring from peak ice. There's a pretty sharp decline, and you can see it in the record there. There's a pretty sharp decline from peak ice. And um, they say, oh, my God, we're, we're already reaching the predictions of 2050 by 2020, you know, by 2015. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? And then, of course, it stopped melting. Um, so it's, uh, like I said, being alarmist means never having to say you're sorry. Yep. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. And uh, they'll keep doing it anytime they can. All right, let's look at the next thing. This is also related to sea ice. 
Polar bears can't handle the loss of sea ice. Mm. Uh, well, fossil results indicate polar bears survived the last global warming deglaciation in Siberia and Canadian areas. They went through it just fine. How about that? Of course, that's the other hand-in-hand -hand thing. The polar bears become the climate poster child for climate alarmism. Uh, you know, and of course, the polar bears are all dying because there's not enough sea ice. Well, nature always finds a way, and the polar bears did just fine the last time the sea ice disappeared. And of course, what we showed you just a couple of minutes ago with that graph, the sea ice is not disappearing, and so the polar bears are doubly fine. And of course, the most important thing is that when Al Gore was born, way back when, there were only about 8,000 polar bears, according to the surveys then. Now, there's almost 40,000. But Al Gore and others still insist that the polar bears are in great danger because of melting, or rather non-melting, non Arctic ice. Guys, what do you think? Well, um, that's the cutest polar bear picture I've ever seen, first of all. Uh, <laughs> it almost makes you forget what their diet is like. Um, <laughs> but the... Uh, the polar bear thing is one of the easier things to refute, and that is why they have largely dropped it from the media narrative on climate change. All you have to do is look at the surveys. They still try to make hay with the few regions that do see declining numbers of polar bears, um, but they don't usually do much of an in-depth analysis that shows either that they're migrating to a different location or um, that other nearby locations are increasing in number, which as I said, might indicate that kind of a migration um, or just, you know, a local regional um, decline, which is perfectly fine. You know, they talk about it with uh, seals as well. You might have a certain colony that suffers some kind of an illness at a certain time, um, decreasing the number of seals. So then the polar bear community and or community, uh, the polar bear population in that area uh, might decline as well. Linnea, don't yeah. you get it? Basically, what's happening here is climate change is causing the polar bears and the seals to move. <laughs> oh, Look, I, as long as they don't move to where I live, I don't really care. They're distinct subpopulations all over the Arctic region. And almost every one of them is stable or growing, except for a couple. Those couple happen to uh, be located in areas where, on average... Uh, <laughs> The temperatures have actually declined, which seems to blow up the narrative. Uh, or, if, or if you thought people should be consistent, it would blow up the narrative. Um, and the, and then you know you see these stories where oh, polar bear attacks so and so, first recorded ever polar bear, you know, in this region, blah blah blah. And they say oh well, climate change is driving polar bears to. Uh, new areas. Interestingly, they're always driving them to warmer areas, which seems weird if if they are completely dependent on the cold. The warmer areas is where the food's at. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not, not according to the people who say polar bears will disappear if they don't have cold. But secondly, they never make the connection. Polar bears are moving and expanding their range because there are too many polar bears in certain regions and they have to grow out. They have to move to find prey, uh, not because prey is not plentiful, but because there's too many polar bears in one spot. Uh, it's called competition. And uh, that ain't a problem. That doesn't show a problem for polar bear populations. That shows that they are doing well. 
Right, but that will get turned into something like climate change is causing an explosion of polar bears. <laughs> I'm not going to worry. That's bad. I'm not. I'm not going to worry until it says climate change causes exploding polar bears. Then <laughs> I'll be concerned. All right. Yeah. That. Well, that'll be there somewhere in the future. I'm sure. Anyway. <laughs> Here's the next crazy climate story of the week. EV battery factory will require so much energy. It needs a coal plant to power it. Yes, you've read that right. EV battery factory requires so much energy, it needs a coal plant to power it. Because, well, manufacturing batteries is energy intensive. For all these folks that are out there hollering about net zero, you know, we all need to drive electric cars and so forth. Well, it's a giant load of hookum. It, it is because they are not net zero. The the amount of energy and, and carbon dioxide production that goes into producing an electric vehicle, much less the batteries, is huge. And, you know, driving, a, you know, driving, you know, maybe the, the 50 to 70,000 mile range are going to get out of it before the battery kicks the bucket. That's not going to make any difference. Yeah, now the this is one of the this is one of my favorite stories of the past year. So you've got a utility that says we're going to close this coal plant. Uh, a public utility agency says, "Yep, we want you to close the coal plant." And then I believe it's a Japanese company. These are never American companies, by the way. They're never American-owned companies. They're going to build these 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 uh, batteries. Uh, they're Chinese. In this case, I think it's a Japanese. They're receiving billions of dollars from American taxpayers to do this, which shows you they're not profitable otherwise. Uh, but then they get there and they say, gosh, we got to have a steady supply of energy. And this wind and solar you're building out here in Kansas just ain't doing the job. So what are we going to do? Oh, well, let's just keep that coal plant that we had slated for closure. In fact, that we had demanded be closed for climate change. Let's just keep it open. I, I love it. You know, this, this that, that looks, looks like an article from Kevin Killo. Is is that his name? He's really pretty sharp. Out in yeah, I think so. It was in Cowboy State Daily the first time I saw it. Well, this was this was in Kansas. Very interesting. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it it shows. I, I won't say the hypocrisy. It sh but it shows the foolishness of the whole idea that a these things can be net zero and b that we can do without base load reliable power because Kansas has built a lot of wind turbines and yet all those wind turbines aren't guaranteed to keep that new factory running that new taxpayer subsidized Japanese factory running yeah but it just goes to show you that the climate alarmists do not think anything through and the folks that are pushing for net zero don't think it through because they're not engineers they're social politicians all right, next article. Get this. You know, they've been telling you for years, everybody's going to die from climate change. Well, not exactly, but, you know, they imply that. But get this. There's really a threat. It's off in the future. New supercontinent could wipe out humans and make Earth uninhabitable, studies suggest. Oh, no. But guess what? It's 250 million years in the future. <laughs> yeah. How is this even a story? Two, two, 200 and uh, 200 and what, 25 times longer in the future than Homo, one of our Homo ancestors, Erectus or whatever, has been around. Homo uh, Erectus. Yeah, yeah. We, we've got to, we've got to worry. And, and what's interesting about this story, another one that does it, I just love this week. Uh, 
was they say, um, just because it, they basically say something like just because it's so far in the future doesn't mean we should start thinking about it now. And one of the problems, yeah, yeah, I've got a plan. I, it's not just that I, I got a plan for next week and next year and for 2030 and 2050. I now have to worry about what's going on 250 million years from now. Um, but I, I, what I loved about this story also is how they blamed it on climate change, because when this new continent comes together, uh, it'll be so hot. There'll be so much CO2 in the air. And they say, and that's even if humans don't, you know, save the planet for the next 200 million years by getting rid of fossil fuels and, and stopping emitting, we'll still have too much CO2. It, it, and so it'll be so hot. We can't inhabit the new pen, you know, uh, I guess I'm going to call it the new Pangea. I, I don't know. Uh, well, that's today's media, isn't it? Some some scientist on the fringe of, of science comes up with some article, puts it out, and then it gets blasted all over the media. It reminds me of the uh, story in, in July saying it was the hottest July in 180,000 years. I mean, everybody knows that's incorrect, but that was carried by dozens and dozens of media outlets and just rebroadcasted without any kind of criticism. It's just kind of the uh, the media world we live in. Well, but it's not, I'm not sure this is fringe science. It might be accurate, but it's 250 million years from now. Who cares? Certainly, you know, we have to start raising taxes now to stop continental drift, or this will um, be our future. Stop continental drift. I like that. We're, we're going to put some large, I, I, I don't know, sink some large post or something in the ocean <laughs> to stop the continents from drifting. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway. I, I, when I saw this headline, I thought it was like a meme, you know, like a fake headline that someone made just to make fun of <laughs> yeah, climate alarmism. Right. But um, I was appalled and entertained, uh, both appalled and thrilled to see that it was real. <laughs> like All I right. said, it, it, the science behind it, it may, it may be 100% accurate, but it's one of those things like, uh, it's 250 million years in the future. How can they predict accurately out that far? They can't. Yeah. Well, there's no accuracy in this. It's all a big guess. Well, it's like it's like. Well, we have found aliens, and they're 300 million light years away, and they might arrive here uh, in 70 million light years because they've got these technologies. Well, okay. Ah, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Headlines. Let's go on to the next one. California wants to know your emissions. That's right. They want to track everything related to business and emissions. They want to basically drill down and find out, did you burn a lump of coal yesterday? More, please, sir. That's what they're getting down to. They're, they want to track the emissions of every business. And, of course, this is just going to be a, a, it's going to be a formula for, number one, the exit continued exit of business at an accelerated pace in California. And number two, it's going to be a recipe for lying on your submission to California because you don't want to get hit by the emissions police. Ugh. Not me. Not me. If I'm a business in California, I'm going to jack up my emissions dramatically <laughs> before, before they get the record keeping online. I mean, I'm going to put 20 charcoal fired barbecue plants out in my back uh, thing just burning it 24 hours a day and then when it comes online i report it then the next year i'll say look how much my emissions have declined i'm gold yeah well there you go unfortunately this is this is a big impact for a lot of companies uh, this is called the california corporate data accountability act 
California SB 253. The legislature has passed it. Uh, the governor says he's about to sign it. It says that companies with revenues in excess of $1 billion that do business in California, no matter where you're located, you have to publicly disclose your emissions. And not only your, your scope one direct emissions, but also your scope two indirect emissions energy and your scope three indirect emissions from your supply chain. So that means a company like uh, uh, Apple or uh, uh, Chevron or anybody who is a big company and does business in California has got to go to all their suppliers and say, okay, tell us all your indirect emissions for all the products you're shipping to us. Really, really a bad situation that, that companies are going to have to react to. Well, the SEC was trying to do the same thing uh, recently, yep. and uh, they put that on hold. But, you know, my I guess my main question is, where do they think they get the authority to do this? And what if a company just tells them to go take a flying leap? Sorry, ain't going to do it. I'm not responsible for somebody else's emissions. I have no authority to tell them to report to me. And you can't grant me authority to tell them to report to me. Let's let's well, wind up let's wind up in court. You know, we'd have to, yeah, we'd have to check and see what's in the bill. Maybe California will try and bar them from doing business in California. So I don't know. Hope not. Yeah. Well, anyway. I hope so. And then let them let them leave California and shut the whole place down. I want it to go dark. I want California <laughs> to go dark and see the results of their and then action. fall into the sea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. One final story here. We're gonna do this quickly. Yes. China Climate Envoy says phasing out fossil fuels is unrealistic. You know, meanwhile, while California is drilling down on how many lumps of coal you burn. Well, you know, maybe this is why. If solar or wind were good alternatives, they wouldn't need political advocates like, you know, being propped up with subsidies from the government. They'd win out on the market themselves. People would flock to buying this stuff. Companies would just go and fall over themselves to try to get more wind and solar if it worked. It doesn't. You want to know the, the best proof that it doesn't work? So Congress has been subsidizing this stuff for more than 30 years now. And we've been told for more than 30 years, as long as I've been doing this, um, that uh, their cost competitiveness is just around the corner. And right now I'm told wind and solar are cheaper than other sources of energy. And yet every budget you know, every time they have to come up with that omnibus because they didn't get their budgeting done as they were supposed to on time. And the subsidies lapse for days or weeks, just for days or weeks. Uh, factory shut down. That's that's how that's how much the market demands these things is factories can't live without the subsidies that government gives them. And so. It, don't tell me that they survive in the marketplace. People are unemployed for days or weeks because, I mean, they shut down immediately. As soon as the subsidy laps, lapses, yeah. the guys come in and say, you guys don't need to show up for work tomorrow. Yeah, well, go figure. You know, what can you do? These folks are just, they're on a mission. So let's go to our main subject today. And that's the new book by Steve. It's called... Uh, Green Breakdown. Now, Steve is the executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America, an author of four books on energy, climate change, and sustainable development. Over 100,000 copies in print, believe it or not. Steve's new book, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, came out on August 1st, and we're going to talk about that today. Steve has some slides to show us. 
And first, I just want to quickly ask you to give us a brief overview of this book, Steve, and, and tell us why, other than the obvious things we've already talked about, green energy is doomed to failure. So as you guys know, the world is, is marching down a uh, effort to get to net zero by 2050. Uh, maybe not all of the world, but the wealthy part of the world, the one-seventh, the United States, Europe, Canada, uh, New Zealand, Australia, and some others. And the idea with net zero is that first they want to reduce the carbon dioxide emissions from all of our processes. And they're in all of our processes, all of our transportation, our industry, our home heating, our electricity. They want to reduce those emissions as low as possible. And then they say they want to capture whatever they can't reduce, a so-called carbon dioxide capture and storage. But this is, uh, this is really beyond a wish and a prayer, beyond anything that's reached out. Uh, it, it is flat out impossible. It's not going to occur. But what it is going to do, and so that's what this book is about. It's a complete discussion of the proposed energy transition. It's got some energy history. It's got a chapter on climate change, but then it talks about um, uh, your utilities, your home appliances, uh, electric vehicles, heavy industry, heavy transportation. Uh, it talks about the recent uh, energy crisis in Europe, and then it predicts some things for the future. But there are four big issues that are going to be occurring um, and that are going to lead us to a breakdown in this, in this idea of getting to net zero. And those are, in summary, higher energy prices, electricity blackouts, uh, less freedom for people, and finally, transnational energy shocks like we saw in Europe over the last two years. And the conclusion of the book is that people are going to reject this. They're going to return to uh, low-cost, reliable energy. That's what they're going to demand. We're seeing a little bit of that occurring in Europe, but it is going to take a decade or two for, for this to get turned around, I believe. All right. So, Steve, you know, we've talked about a number of different topics uh, on this program. And uh, you've sent us a slide deck to talk about. So I'm going to start off with that. Uh, we've talked about this before, but aren't human CO2 emissions causing hurricanes to become more frequent and stronger as the headlines proclaim, you know, and this is one of the uh, reasons why we have to be into the green energy thing. Yeah, that's what, that's what they say. Well, this year we had Hurricane Idalia make landfall. We've only had one hurricane make landfall in the U.S. this year. Typically it's about two. Uh, that was in uh, the panhandle of, uh, of Florida. It was a very big storm, category three. Uh, we also had Hurricane Lee, which, which missed the U.S., became a tropical storm, went up and hit Nova Scotia, I believe. But, of course, NPR and uh, USA Today and CNN ring with how uh, all these headlines of how this is caused by our emissions, our neighbor's SUV, our power plants, and the storms are getting more frequent and, and uh, more severe. But if you look at history, you can go to data from our own U.S. government. Uh, we've had about 150 hurricanes that have made, uh, I'm sorry, about 300 hurricanes that have made landfall in the last 150 years. Uh, many of those, about a third of those were category three or stronger. We've had a dozen years when, when two or more category three hurricanes have hit the US. And then if you look at the trends, the uh, number of hurricanes making landfall in the US has actually been slowly declining since about uh, the 1870s or so. Uh, we, we used to get a little bit more than uh, two hurricanes a year make landfall. Now it's a little bit less. Uh, there's also a great satellite data. We have uh, satellites look down now uh, and provide data to scientists. And they've been doing that for about 50 years. 
and they track every tropical cyclone that's on the surface of the Earth. And it produces a couple curves. Uh, if you're showing this, the it has a uh, uh, on the top is the number of tropical storms uh, in any 12 month period. Um, so go back a slide there. Oh, it's that's that's the one right there. And those are typically about 90 in any 12 month period. And then the number of hurricanes, which is the gray curve down below, typically about 40 or 45. But you look at this data and, and there's really no trend in more tropical storms. And this graph is also a graph of storm strength because if tropical storms were getting stronger over time, they would get, get a high enough wind speeds to be counted as hurricanes. And so the number of hurricanes would be rising, but it isn't happening. So the data doesn't show the alarm. Nevertheless, uh, we have uh, the news media sending this stuff out whenever some scientist says it. And very few scientists, uh, at least from the, the climate, the climatism side, want to want to say anything that's counter to this. So, what about uh, you know the temperatures today compared to you know what they've been in the past? Uh, of course, the, the the common argument from climate alarmists is is that we have unprecedented temperatures. But what's the real deal? Yeah, you know, if you get in just about any argue, uh, ar any article about climate in the press, the odds are it's probably wrong. And again, referencing that article in July said it was the warmest in 180,000 years. That's flat out wrong. Uh, we have uh, much data uh, back through the last 10,000 years from proxies that measure temperature, ice cores, uh, the ratio of uh, carbon, uh, uh, sorry, oxygen isotopes and ice cores, tree rings, other things that show it was warmer a thousand years ago during the medieval warm period. At that time, there were trees in Southwest Greenland. There are no trees there today. 2000 years ago when the Romans uh, uh, conquered the Mediterranean, at that time they were growing olives in the area that is Germany today. And 4,000, 8,000 years ago, today's climate is not historically warm. And by the way, during those warm periods, all those polar bears would have died out, right? <laughs> They're a mirage whenever they put up those polar bear pictures. And just to give you one, one bit of evidence, uh, if any of your listeners or viewers have been to the uh, Rhone Glacier in uh, central Switzerland, that's a big glacier in the middle of Switzerland. The Rhone River is, is sourced there, flows out into France, down in the Mediterranean. It's got wall-to-wall -wall ice between a couple mountains. But the Rhone Glacier has been receding uh, for more than a century. Yet every time it pulls back, they find things under it like wagon wheels and horse bridles and 4,000-year-old wood. Now, one scientist, uh, Christian Schluter, says he estimated that for 6,000 of the last 10,000 years, there was no ice where this glacier is today. So there are just loads of evidence that say that uh, nature has been naturally warmer uh, over the over the past periods, and uh, this is far before uh, power plants or sport utility vehicles. You know, I, I want to follow up on that a little bit because, um, I mean, your example of them finding things under melting glaciers is perfect. You know, uh, Otzi, they found Otzi, the uh, the guy in the Alps. Well, he had been buried under ice for, for millennia. And that means that if he was there millennia ago uh, and he was buried then, well, it was as warmer, warmer then. Same is true of Greenland. You know, they, they found the Greenland ice, oh, the caps are retreating. Uh, it's going to lead to sea level rise, this, that, and the other. So they found shell middens 
you know, big packs of shells and, and, uh, and fossilized zooplankton and stuff like that on the land in Greenland, miles from current water lines. Um, and that tells you that there was a shore there at one time, not that long ago, uh, like four to 6,000 years ago. Uh, so that wasn't an ice cap at the time, you know, uh, when the Vikings moved there and set up their permanent settlements, right? Oh, we, we've now set up permanent settlements on Greenland. In fact, we're going to call it Greenland. It's so green. Um, and then, of course, the, the ice came back and they had to abandon their permanent settlements. It's, it's, it's idiotic. Even within, I won't say my lifetime because I wasn't around during World War II, but you know, they, they now find these uh, airplanes that went down during World War II that were covered over with ice. Well, okay. So that means it was ice-free when they landed if they were covered over with ice. We're just now finding them. And that's within the last 70, 80 years. Yeah, absolutely. Many, many examples. Another one's the Mendenhall Glacier. The Mendenhall Glacier near Juneau has been retreating for about a century. And they put up pictures showing the old glacier and the new one. But just about eight years ago, scientists from Southwest Alaska University went down into ice caves under the glacier. I don't think I have an image on this one. <laughs> but under these, under the glacier in these ice caves, they found tree stumps. And they still had the roots in the ground. And they radiocarbon dated them. They were uh, 1,000 years old. They, they grew up during the medieval warm period. So 1,000 years ago, we had a forest where today we have a glacier on top of it. Uh, but there are just there's mountains of evidence. Today's climate is not historically warm. Yeah, my my favorite of these kinds of examples are those um, European hunger stones. So there are these um, stone tablets that were submerged in rivers hundreds of years ago, and the people back then would make markings on them to show the water level to say, hey, this is the effect of the water level being this low. You know, we're having a famine or whatever it happens to be. And they recently became uncovered by some dropping water levels due to some drought in Europe. And the media is saying, see, this is proof of dangerous climate change because now we're seeing these old hunger stones. The river hasn't been this low since, you know, 500 years ago when someone wrote, you know, if it's this slow, we're dead, right. kind of a commentary on the stone. <laughs> but but they don't realize as they're writing this that this is just proving that it was that low in the past, but well before SUVs and, um, you know, coal power plants. The Multiple times in the past, those hunger stones are interesting because it's it's not that they say, oh, in, in 1470, we had a drought. It was like in 1470, and then they find another stone. Well, in 1292, and then they find another stone you know, etched that was 500 years earlier. So it's, it's gone up and down multiple times. And, uh, and yet now it's all human cause and it's dangerous. Now it's wasn't dangerous before. Yep. All righty. So what do we got next, Steve? Uh, I think we're talking about forest fires as another reason for, uh, why, you know, we have to be involved in this, switch to green because apparently green electronics and cars and so forth don't cause yeah. forest fires or contribute to the, the things that cause forest fires. Yeah. As, as Linnea said earlier, they've kind of, kind of tailed off of the polar bears because the arguments have been raised against those, but the, the big new one is forest fires. Every time you have fire in Canada, in Hawaii, in California, then that has to be caused by man-made warming. Uh, Governor Newsom of California is, is, uh, uh, 
does this all the time. He goes to a fire and he, and he films himself talking about, if you don't believe in climate change, come to California. It is true in, in the last 10 years, we've had 10 of the top 20 California fires in terms of structure damage. But you got to kind of say, okay, is that is that due to the couple tenths change in temperature we've had in, in three, three decades or so? In uh, 2018, the Little Hoover Commission studied the problem and said, A, there was a century of fire suppression in California, and B, that fires were the way forests stay healthy. And, and that fire suppression has caused forests that have been clogged uh, with dead trees. Uh, we have timber harvesting in California down 65% in the last 30 years. And then also in 2018, the U.S. Forest Service said they, they estimated there were 147 million dead trees in California. And so when they have these fires, they just go crazy. They can't put them out and they burn vast areas. But uh, uh, really an interesting thing from, from NASA a couple years ago, uh, NASA again uses satellites to track global burned area from fires. Every August, we have about 10,000 fires burning on the surface of the earth. But they reported that the global burned area has been declining now. It's down about 20% in the last 15 years or so. And so you really have to ask the question, uh, is, are the fires in California due to climate change when burned areas are declining across the world? You know, the, re the real answer is it's forest management. That's what California needs to do. If, if Governor Newsom thinks uh, we can all drive SUVs and stop the forest fires in California, he really needs to get better advice. Well, he wants you to drive electric vehicles that he then tells you not to charge during the summer when there are forest yeah. fires, right? Because the fires are caused by down power lines. So we've got shortages. But you're right. You're 100% right. I've written about this uh, probably dozens of times. Um, bad management. You know, when, when Reagan was president, so a few years ago, um, we were taking out 12 a billion board feet a year from national forest. Now we're less than 2 billion board feet a year. Um, we started managing for ecosystems. Like we're doing the ecosystems a, a great benefit when we let them burn to the ground. We ripped out thousands of miles of forest roads. So you can't get to the fires before they reach structures. And we've allowed no. building up into formerly forested areas, right? So everyone wants to live near the forest. Oh, I want the trees around me. Well, okay. But when they burn, your house is, is now in the bullseye, right? It's, it's called the expanding bullseye effect. Yeah, so, you're right. Envi envi the environmentalists in California have made it difficult to even build roads through your land, even if you own the land, private property. And so it's difficult to clean up your forests nowadays. Say. So uh, uh, there's just a lot of factors involved, but, but it isn't the small amount of temperature change. That's not what's causing it. Anthony, so you're, we, you're, uh, I think you're Anthony's muted. muted. Yeah. Are you muted? We, we I, talked earlier. I muted Anthony myself about... so I could cough. There we go. So, so, so the first problem I mentioned about the coming breakdown is the cost of energy, the cost of electricity. And uh, Sterling said earlier that, uh, yeah, you see all these headlines about how renewables are cheaper. Usually that refers to a marginal cost of producing one unit of electricity. But if you look at a total system, Anywhere, anywhere in the world where renewables have, have been deployed, primarily wind and solar, we see rising electricity costs. And this, this chart that I, I've been doing for about six or seven years now, 
graphs the wind and solar capacity watts per person of a nation on the vertical axis and the residential electricity price on the horizontal axis. And, uh, and this is for all the nations of Europe. And if wind and solar were cheaper, the nations that use the most wind and solar would have the lowest electricity prices. But you see the exact opposite. You see an upward trending curve and the nations that use the most wind and solar have the highest prices. Uh, Denmark and Germany are the big example. They have three times the price of, of electricity in the United States and Canada. We see a similar thing in, in uh, the Western uh, US as well. Um, I have another graph that plots the top 12 uh, wind states and their percent price increase over the last 14 years. Now the, the national average price increase for electricity over that period, 14 years, has been about 27%. Not too bad, a little bit lower than inflation. But eight of the 12 uh, leading wind states, including Kansas, we mentioned earlier, have prices that have gone up 30 to 70%. And of course, California takes the cake. California is now uh, the second most expensive electricity state in the country, Green California, right behind Hawaii. But the problem is that these systems have to build transmissions out to remote areas, and they, are, they also have to account for intermittency. And so the more we deploy these renewables, the more the higher our electricity prices are going to rise. Because of, in part because of redundancy, you have to have assets, spinning reserves yes. just sitting around. You got to pay for those. If you got a gas plant or a coal plant or whatever your plant is, and it's just sitting there waiting to be ramped up and down, the costs don't change. You've got to pay for that. And so that's added to your cost. You're right. So as you increase uh, wind and solar penetration, you're building new wind and solar systems. You have to keep something like 90% of the existing plants uh, ready to be to operate. Uh, and you run them at much lower utilization, so they're not as cost effective. And so as you're right, the system gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more expensive. So the, the, uh, the second big problem is electricity blackouts. I'm gonna skip down a slide here. Uh, wind is fundamentally incompatible with always on electricity. And, and we were just talking about that. And if you do not, if you do not back up your wind and solar systems, then you end, out with, uh, end up with blackouts. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that in uh, Texas, Oklahoma, and California in the last two years. Also the, uh, the Energy Information Administration says that with the average outage in the United States uh, for a customer was about three hours in 2012, 2013. Now it's running about eight hours. We have more than twice the outages now, and this can be attributed to the, the intermittencies. By the way, let me read something from uh, Mark Christie. Mark Christie is a federal, federal Energy Regulatory Commission commissioner. He testified in front of the Senate uh, uh, two months ago, three months ago, he said, quote, I think we're headed for very dire consequences, potentially catastrophic consequences in the United States in terms of the reliability of our grid. And he basically says we're closing coal plants too fast. In some cases, we're closing natural gas plants too fast. And what we're gonna have is blackouts. And so we are well on that road uh, next one up probably is New England that has a shortage of natural gas. They get a severe uh, weather uh, winter this year. They're going to have blackouts as well. Well, uh, New England will just import gas from Russia because they'd rather have it come <laughs> in from Russia 
through yeah. uh, through LNG terminals than uh, than from West Virginia or Pennsylvania. Well, part of that problem is New York. New York has blocked gas pipelines now for two decades, so they can't get gas anymore. They can't get more, but you're right. They were importing it from Russia. And about 30% of their natural gas comes in at the at the world price for liquefied natural gas. As a result, New England pays about twice the price of most other areas in the United States for natural gas. And this last winter, even a mild winter, they had uh, energy bills that were running $1,000 for electricity and gas or fuel, very, very high. Uh, so we're headed down this road of, of blackouts and rising prices for New England, the uh, next big area. So what's the bottom line on all of this craziness, Steve? Yeah, so the bottom line is that, that people are going to push back on this. Uh, they are going to revolt. We're, we're seeing it somewhat in, in Europe already. Uh, there's a bunch of elections in Germany in in uh, Netherlands, in England that are coming up. And a lot of the people don't want to be switching to heat pumps and they don't want the high prices. And uh, they want to take a step back from net zero. And so uh, the people there are struggling with it. It hasn't become official policy yet, but Europe has done things like uh, uh, their, their coal-fired electricity outputs up 20% from a year ago. Germany restarted 27 coal-fired plants there's plans to announce uh, gas production. So we're going to see a step back from this. Uh, the ideology of climatism is powerful, uh, this fear of man-made warming, but people are eventually going to revolt. Uh, it's going to take a couple decades, but uh, it's sure going to be interesting to watch. How much damage will be caused in the meantime? I mean, you can ladle on a lot of cost to people and harm a lot of people in two decades. You can, you can, and that's the real tragedy, especially for, for low-income folks, um, uh, who have a, a have a, uh, uh, they they're paying their electric bill. Uh, they might be forced to switch to a heat pump or electric appliances, which are very expensive. Uh, they are, and by the way, uh, we are marching down a road. The EPA is driving us down a road where it's going to be impossible for any car manufacturer to provide a line of internal combustion engine gasoline cars by about 2035. That's because of the carbon dioxide emissions out of tailpipes and because of the mileage requirements. The automakers are trying to push back, but so far the EPA is marching forward. So that's another area. You gotta buy an electric car. It's gonna be very, very expensive. It's gonna reduce the driving people can do. So I, I just think folks are gonna say enough of this. Uh, let's go back to renewable energy, by the way, we could have a couple decades of cooling coming up. There's a number of scientists predicting that. We'll just have to see. So far, we've had a general, gentle warming since about 1975, but we got a couple decades of cooling, and this, uh, this uh, theory of uh, dangerous man-made warming is going to be very tough to support. Well, yeah. to I want to remind everyone that you can uh, post questions up on the comments, and we'll answer them here. Uh, so feel free to pose some questions and comments. And and try to mark them with like a Q or something, guys, so it's a little bit easier for Andy to find them. To be clear, yep. we haven't had a, a consistent gentle warming. What we've had is we've had periods of warming, periods of stasis or, uh, you know, basically flatline and then periods yep. of warming. But because this is all supposed to be caused by CO2, what you haven't had is sort of uh, CO2 rise, stasis, CO2 rise. No, it's CO2 keeps going up. Uh, but the warming is like 
uh, it's spiky. It, yes, it and, is. It, and it flatline. It's flatlined for eight years now. Yep. It was. I think that was a little bit higher in 2016 than it is now. It's been a little flat. We'll have to see. It's a warm year this year, but we'll have to see what yeah, happens. Well, yeah, that was an El Nino year, and so most of that warming was entirely from a natural phenomena. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, let's go. Let's tell people again uh, where they can get your book. Uh, it's on Amazon, right? Yeah, Green Breakdown. I was fortunate; it made number one on um, uh, oil and energy industry for a couple weeks. Uh, but you can get it on Amazon. There are eBooks as well on uh, Apple and Google and uh, Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble. And then, if they want a signed copy, they can order one from my website, Steve Gorham, G O R E H A M dot com. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you know, the, your books have all been very informative and very well read. We've got over 100,000 copies in print, and that's really quite an accomplishment. Have you had any blowback about these things? I mean, have you had people calling you up in the middle of the night and doing things like threatening you or whatever, like some of us have had happen? Not too much yet. I'm a little, I'm a little bit of a second-tier climate guy, so I don't get too much of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Back when I wrote them, you know, occasionally, and I present to I present to industry groups all the time, um, metals, utilities, transportation, uh, agriculture. I, I get some people walk out on me periodically. That happens, or occasionally I'll get a uh, what I call a "When did you stop beating your wife?" kind of question. But uh, outside of that, not too much. All right, so we've got some questions from viewers. Let's see what our first one is, and um, I would hope that um, we can answer it. And here it comes. All right. Bob Johnson says, why do we build in fire zones? <laughs> uh, well, I guess the simple answer is because we're stupid. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's moral hazard. We build, you build in fire zones because you know the government's going to bail you out if your house burns. If you have to pay for it yourself, you don't build there. <laughs> Yeah. yeah it's, it's a little bit like hurricane-prone areas as well. That's right. One of the reasons damage has gone up, a lot of people are building on the coast. and Gover and Government the, subsidizes hurricane insurance and flood insurance, uh, and it subsidizes the uh, premiums for that. Taxpayers pick up that bill. And so when a disaster comes, uh, if, if government's picking up the tab, so what? I wanted to live on the coast. I'm going to be really building on the coast. Yeah, you know, floods, flood insurance, people, you know, people like to be in extra water. You know, they like to be near the ocean, they like to be near the river, you know, and of course that means either hurricane flooding or river flooding, and you know, go figure. Dean Haugarth asks, why do the media never report on arson-caused forest fire? They never cover the follow-up. Well, I think it's because, you know, as Sterling and I have, have learned in climate realism, and Linnea too, is that Right now, the media is actually being subsidized on a lot of different levels to report on climate change as being the cause of pretty much everything. The Associated Press got a couple of years ago, I believe, with a $2.1 million grant. Does that sound right, Sterling? Um, hmm. to, to put climate change stories out there. Yeah, so they hired, They're being paid to do this. They hired reporters. The, 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 the Six climate alarmed foundations gave them millions of dollars specifically for one thing to report on climate change and they hired a whole crew of reporters around the world to do just that so they're getting stories fed to them every day because these people who were hired their continued employment depends on them turning in stories every day on climate change yeah yeah go figure all right next question 
What do we got? Alien drone services. Gosh, I need one of those. Uh, yes, Steve Gorham, will data centers, um, you know, clouds, AI, web services, and so forth, eventually account for essentially all energy consumption? How are we going to keep up with the demand? Well, they are going up. I just wrote an article that was published in Daily Caller about, I think the, uh, the uh, International Energy Agency says about 1.5% of uh, CO2 emissions come from data centers now. But uh, everybody's switching over to AI, and uh, the amount of AI um, uh, infrastructure is supposed to increase a compounded rate of 44% per year for the next five years. And also, when you put in these, these AI servers, they use about seven times as much electricity as a traditional data center server. And so you have a huge, a huge volume of electricity that's going to be going to be. Uh, coming online and, and uh, needs to be sourced into these data or uh, supplied to these data centers. So emissions from data centers probably going to go up by a factor of 10 in the next 10 years, uh, which again, is just another reason why uh, net zero isn't going to occur. That plus uh, the need for uh, energy growth in the developing world. Uh, again, net zero is, is uh, one of the more foolish things we've ever decided that we, we ought to be doing. Yeah, I want to point out, I did a story on What's Up With That a few years ago about the new supercomputer at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. And they, they built this giant supercomputer, you know, it's like a warehouse size, right? And you'd think they would put it in Boulder, where the scientists are. Ooh, what did they do? <laughs> they put it in Wyoming. Why? Because Wyoming has cheap coal to power the electricity needed to run the data center. What hypocrites! Yeah, and Wyoming's a good place for data center type stuff anyway because the um, they don't have a humidity problem whatsoever in Wyoming. <laughs> there is no dealing with that. Yeah. All right, next question if we have one. Catherine Burke, what about EV consumption of energy? And I would uh, assume she means the growing need for EV charging and so forth. Is that going to be a, as big a problem as what we've got with, you know, like AI data centers? It's going to be quite, if you're, if you're asking me, it is going to be uh, quite a bit more. Uh, actually, uh, the idea of that we have to transition everything to electric for home heating and for appliances can be just as big. Uh, uh, work done by the New England ISO actually predicted that was going to be bigger for New England than adoption of electric vehicles. But, you know, it, it is crazy. We've had this year in the last two months, uh, Texas, EPCOT, uh, the energy authority there, has issued 10 alerts, uh, electricity alerts, saying we're using too much, uh, dial back your air conditioner, stop charging your EV, 10 in just two months. And so, uh, again, uh, we need to get back to reliable uh, wind, solar, nuclear, and uh, and build enough capacity so that we can supply the energy needs of people and not telling them to keep dialing back their equipment. All right, one final question we have here. And that question is from Richard Voss. EU banks are pushing a big transition to net zero intending to force non-compliant businesses out of the economy. How does this behemoth turn itself around? Well, I don't think it will turn itself around. It has to be an external force. Yeah, the momentum is so 
huge, especially in the uh, banking world behind the net zero stuff and all the ESG stuff. Uh, I think it's going to take some pretty substantial public uh, lashback at them. I, um, I, I, I'm more optimistic. So oh, to yeah. some extent, they are like a train, right? They're on the tracks. They're going at 55 miles per hour. It takes a while to stop when you have to brake. Um, but uh, we're already seeing evidence of these banks, both in Europe and international banks, development banks, backing out of these net zero uh, international agencies, right? They, they're dropping out of the UN agencies, you know, the agreements that they had to go to net zero and ESG. And if... Uh, governments change their minds, which you see in England and you're, you're seeing increasingly in Germany and, and the Netherlands, people being thrown out of office and new offices. I guarantee you banks will follow what the governments tell them to follow because they want to continue to be chartered and operating in those countries. So um, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, more optimistic that this can turn itself around. You know, everyone thinks, oh, well, so-and-so bank dictates to no. In the end, uh, the chairman of Goldman Sachs can't call the can't call a single senator to account. Uh, you will come and testify, but the senator can call them. And so my suspicion is, if the governments change their minds, the banks will change their minds. Let's hope that's the case. All right, I want to review once again. The title of the book is "Green Breakdown: The Coming Renewable Energy Failure" by Steve Gorham. And it is available on Amazon.com uh, in print as a paperback and also as a Kindle download. And I'd advise you to go get this book and read it. It's got a lot of good information in it and some things you haven't heard before. Steve, I want to thank you for coming on the program today and talking about your book and answering questions. And, of course, I want to thank Linnea and Sterling for chiming in uh, when they had points of interest and uh, insight to add. I want to remind everyone to visit climaterealism.com where we put down the media's crazy stories every day. Climateataglance.com where we have uh, rebuttals to specific points about climate from a scientific basis. And then finally, energyataglance.com where we talk about different facets of renewable and non-renewable energy and how they are making humanity live its best life. Anyway, with that, I want to thank you and say that I'm Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for Environment and Climate at the Heartland Institute, wishing you all a wonderful Friday and a great weekend. Bye-bye.